Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. This season on SageCast, we're talking with a variety of Pomona College faculty members about how they came to study what they study, teach what they teach, and love the field they love. Today, we're talking with Professor of Japanese, Lin Miyaki, about the study of Japanese literature from the 1,000-year-old tale of Genji to the modern universe of manga. Welcome, Lin. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, let's start with language. Okay. Uh, which came first for you, English or Japanese, or were you bilingual from the start? Um, I guess probably bilingual until, certainly until we go to school. So I guess I still was bilingual then, but um, we had a really wonderful setup linguistically, is what I'm told, because I had a grandmother who came to uh, Hawaii when she was 18, but she refused to learn any English except some choice words to make sure her <laughs> her, her uh, grandchildren behaved. And so when she was around, we spoke Japanese. And when she wasn't, we spoke English. So we had a very natural sort of division. And so I rarely mixed as I, mm-hmm. a lot of my friends, you know, they'll speak in Japanese and then they switch to English and it drives me crazy because I have to, I'm switching whole cultural and worldviews and linguistic strategies strategies, you know, and uh-huh. I'm just going crazy, but that's how they've grown up. Mm-hmm. Whereas I had these very nice little neat packages. So um, I can't remember what my first words were. I, you know, I don't know, <laughs> but we, we just use them interchangeably. Mm-hmm. But certainly English is my stronger suit, especially because all my education has been really formal education has been in English. Yeah. And you, you grew up in Hawaii? Yes, I grew up in Hawaii in a little plantation town of 2000. Um, it had, um, it's a cane field plantation town, but now it's gone and I'm hoping it's not all development. I don't think so. They said it's boutique stores or something now. So I'm Uh okay with that, I guess. Can you trace uh-huh. back your interest in Japanese literature? When did that come about? Um, it's very interesting. I guess my um, mother was very much into reading books. So as ever since we were very little, we read books. So I've always been interested in literature. And mm-hmm. um, because we grew up in a small town, um, we, well... High school and junior high was a little bit on the easy side, so we always read lots of books. Even in elementary school, I think we all read two or three books beyond whatever they taught us in school. Mm-hmm. And so we would have to walk through the cane fields to get to the um, library, but we mm-hmm. started reading there. And so actually my first love was really Dostoevsky and Tolstoy oh. and all of those kinds of mm-hmm. works. And, you know, I guess Japanese literature was just part of my upbringing, Mm-hmm. rather than saying, you know, I would do literature per se. Um, um, so basically what happened was I spent a lot more time probably watching films when I was a little kid mm-hmm. and, and, and getting into Japanese literature that way. We'd go with my grandmother. We In our town, we had two, oh, actually with the neighboring town, there were three little theaters that showed Um, Japanese films. So you could go to one every night if you wanted to. So my introduction really to Japanese literature was really more through those films rather than the actual text. Mm. Yeah. But it was so basically it was not till I got to college that I really formally began to think about Japanese literature and the hubris of the young. I figure, oh yeah, I grew up with Japanese. I know all that stuff. So let's (laughs) do something else. So (laughs) I did comparative literature and I did Russian and Japanese. Ah. And really loved it because of the Dostoevsky, yeah. Tolstoy, yeah. and all these. I didn't get to Google to later, which I absolutely loved. But, you know, that was further down along the line. But 
So that was my start in Japanese literature, I think. Now, you specialize in, in classical right. Japanese literature. Right. What right. does that entail? Um, I uh, specialize in 10th to 12th century uh, Japanese literature. And there is another era before that, but this is the, the central, well, I guess, again, the hubris of the young. I thought, okay, I want to do the central literary tradition of each <laughs> each. Um, uh, what uh, culture. So for Japanese, I did 10th to 12th century because I thought this was the beginning of a lot of what became considered to be Japanese literature after they separated a little more clearly from the Chinese influences. And then for Russian, I did 19th century. So you can see so my, my, my professors said, well, that's a little far apart. <laughs> I said, yeah, but, but these are the essences or whatever I thought was the central <laughs> paradigms for each of them. So that's mm -hmm. what I did. So 10th to, 20th, 10th to 12th century Japanese literature actually is a very circumscribed group of um, maybe they said up 400 to 1,000 readers, and that was all. It was basically the court, the family, and the uh, clergy who could read. And um, so all of them were aristocrats. And so they, the tale of Genji is very long. It's over 1,200 pages. But you could think of it as vignettes. And so everything in, that was produced by that culture is very short because um, it, they, they're coded. They say, for instance, there are two words, one for it's interesting and one for it's beautiful in a sort of um, what uh, sad uh, way. And there, there are 10 or 15 mini meanings for it. And each one of them is totally well known by the populace because there it's, you know, a shared code of uh, understanding nuances, very specific contexts will define what's going on. So the poetry from that period is 31 syllables. And it's um, so I call it, I guess, what um, sort of a, a surface horizontal depth rather than the 19th century psychological depth, because um, that 31 syllable poem will always will often reference by one word another poem in the corpus and uh, so on. And so there is this associative understanding of what's happening and everyone would know that. And sort of as if we say Disneyland and it would evoke all kinds of memories depending on who you're talking to, a sure, child or sure. an older person or so on. And so that kind of coding is very much in place in terms of the uh, actual words, but also in terms of the imagery and so on. So, and I specialize actually in the women's literature more than not of the period. And actually, um, it is the women who end up writing the bell letters of the period. I mean, this is something, you know, the Japanese government, in a sense, decided. The world decides because the other the men were writing in classical Chinese as well. And they wrote poetry, they wrote diaries in that form. And only the women really, not only the women, because the men did write in, in vernacular Japanese and they wrote poetry, but the women are the ones who wrote the longer texts in, in um, Japanese. So We started talking yeah. already about right. Telegenji and uh -huh. talked a little about the women and, right. and, and mm -hmm. the, their um, space in, in literature. Can you tell us a little bit more about um, other authors of you know, 10th through 12th century, and if you want to do Russian as well, okay, too. Okay. We, we, <laughs> right, sure. we can start with yeah. Japanese literature. Yes, okay. Um, so uh, a lot of the literature in the 10th to 12th century is uh, poetry and 31 syllables, and they are arranged in 
anthologies. Um, some of them are imperially commissioned, mm -hmm. and so they pick the best poems of the period and set them up in some kind of uh, sequence. So that's very much there, but um, a lot of the poets in there are men because the editors were also men. Um, but where the women really show, uh, really sparkled or you know, really um, did well was in these, what they call diary literature, because it's not diaries in the sense that we know where you have a, you present a date and then you give you know, whatever is happening for the period. It's a little bit longer and it becomes almost like an autobiography. And so the women wrote many of those. And so there's, uh, and the other interesting thing is many of the women are named for the positions of their fathers. For instance, even the tale of Genji author, uh, Murasaki Shikibu, uh, Murasaki actually is named for the one of the central characters in the work she creates, and Shikibu is the um, court uh, position that her father held. Mm -hmm. And um, the story is that um, if men knew or people in general knew a woman's given name, that meant that they could possess her sexually. Or, but I think there's something else going on there too. <laughs> Because the men were all were given very specific names, and those are all mm -hmm. recorded. The only mm -hmm. women who have their um, names, given names, recorded are the empresses and consorts to the imperial family. So there is something going on here <laughs> that I think is more than just, you know, saving the virginity or whatever you want to call it of right. the women. Um, so um, the counterpart to Murasaki Shikibu is actually um, uh, the, the author of uh, the pillow book, Seishou Nagong. And she actually, what was very, very interesting about her is um, she writes really a, a, a combination of anecdotes, um, lists even. She'll say trees and she'll list all these trees or mountains and lists all these trees. And from what we can tell, she's an apologist for her culture and her time, that she's saying these are the best. And she has this wonderful list of um, these are cute things, you know, um, a little child trying to pick up, um, I guess, a ball or something. But what's even more or elegant things, they're short. What's really long is what she hates. She has a page and a half of what she hates. So you can tell what her personality is. And uh -huh. in many ways, she was sort of, you know, an equal to the men. <laughs> she didn't, <yeah. laughs> so that, that was kind of an interesting, you know, persona that she did have. But um, one of my professor's also, friends also said it was because of a difference in the two um, empresses, whom Murasaki, one that Murasaki Shikibu served and the one that um, Seishou Nagaon served. Seishou Nagaon came in at a time where her empress was older and um, would allow her ladies-in-waiting to do whatever they wanted, so to speak. She gave them more leeway to do various things, whereas um, Murasaki Shikibu's empress actually was much younger, and um, she had all kinds of pressure on her to succeed and actually beat out the older mm. consort who was already there. So she could not be, have the largesse of, yes, please go ahead and do what you'd like. And her father was incredibly powerful, so he also... So there are all these very interesting stories behind because Murasaki Shikubi is always considered very dark 
and somber and so on, whereas Seisho Nagong is going out there and having all this great time and, uh, you know, one upsmaning all the men and having, you know. <laughs> so, the, the, but, so it was interesting for me, too, to realize that it's not just the personality of the writers, mm-hmm. but the circumstances around sure. yeah. and, and to a point where it's almost surprising, I guess, for, you know, a contemporary person to realize that, you know, you have those kinds of um, issues that you, got, you have to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us more about the tale of Genji? What what is it that makes it important in Japanese literature? Um, it is, um, I guess, I you know when I teach Japanese literature, I think what's interesting, and one of my students told me this a long time ago. We were reading another diary by um, a nineteenth century woman, and she said. She loved that piece because it let her, as a reader, enter it and move around in the text and really, um, what, think about her own uh, childhood in circumstances or in settings that were explained in the work itself. And she would go back and think about, for instance, I guess it was a kitchen with the old-fashioned kettle on top of a, um, you know, fireplace thing, Mm -hmm. and she really felt that she could remember and go back and add her little story about her visits to her grandmother. Mm-hmm. So the reader brings a lot to the mm-hmm. text. And she said for her, a lot of, I'm sure she's talking about classic, you know, realist novel where it's much more theological that you have to be on this train and certain adverbs, I'm not adverbs, more adjectives are set for how you're supposed to think mm-hmm. about this particular mm-hmm. um, uh, character and the plot is quite driven. She felt that she was on a railway and couldn't get <laughs> off and it was very hard <laughs> for her. And so I think in a sense, that's what, you know, Genji does probably in spades. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it is in the sense where, um, of course, the reader is asked to bring a lot. So it's very yeah. evocative. It's very evocative. And, you know, there's a lot of, it's not quite Jane Austen, but st- that, that kind of, because I was surprised when I was in grad school trying to, I think, uh, study for my orals. And I thought, oh, well, I'm going to read this. And I realized how contemporary it was, regardless of how old it was. Mm-hmm. And I think there is that in the tale of Genji that you may not understand exactly how and why they're doing those things. But the fact of being women who are, you know, living in a society in which the men really control your life and the and the, the romantic relationships are really foils for political struggles and creation of you know, alliances and so on. And in, in many ways, too, I think Murasaki Shikibu was a, a, a genius at having Genji being the center, and it's called the tale of Genji and not about the women, but he's like an empty center, that he's the mm. reason why the women can be on stage, and their association with him adds a new dimension to who he is as a person and a character. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting to see. So it's a double, at least a double or triple layer, depending if you want to add the philosophical, mm-hmm. the religious, and then we're talking mm-hmm. about all kinds of other things. So I think that's the richness. But also, I think the Heian culture was considered the intellectual cultural property throughout pre-modern. And so after the Heian court um, was defeated and the warriors come to 
uh, to the fore, that next group really has incredible nostalgia about the Heian. Mm. And so they have to make Genji their own mm -hmm. in some ways to show it's the, what, the, um, I guess it comes from the Chinese intelligentsia where the right to rule is not being an orator. It doesn't mean that you know your history, but it is literary prowess as well mm -hmm. in a way that's really, re so it's in, you know, um, and, and that's what's seriously important. And so what becomes the center for, um, from the Heian period is the poetry and also the tale of Genji. And this gets passed on um, by the, the next group who's even more warrior based and they actually create the no drama, but they, they do it with very specific stories about the tale of Genji. And so on, the townspeople even end up with this hilariously funny parody. There are two of them. Um, one is a little more serious. One is totally hilarious. Um, it's called The Life of an Amorous Man. And he has 3,000 lays in the entire time that he's alive. And his first one is when he's three. And at the end, he sails off to the island of the... Um, women or something. He's looking for the island of the women with his banner is the underwear of the, the leading uh, courtesan of the time. So, I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, just this, you know, incredibly funny parody of Genji. And this happens. And then in the 1920s and 30s, well, before that, they get to be, it, it's novelized mm -hmm. so that it becomes accessible to a broader group. Yeah. But in the 1920s or in 30s, the Japanese government actually use the tale of Genji in order to be counted one of the a modern nation state. Because Benedict Anderson says, in order to be a nation state, you must have your own national language and literature. And so mm -hmm. they, go, they said, oh, wow. And then the novel was it. And go, we have one. It was written a thousand years ago. <laughs> and so this, so, you know, this, mm -hmm. it's been used as cultural, political, capital, all through its time and had been passed on probably more than any other text. Um, I mean, of course, there are others, you know, the uh, Tale of Heike and some other things uh, uh, have those, but never quite like the Tale of Genji. And of course, when they considered it the same as Marcel Proust's work, they're like, sure, we've made it, you know, whatever. <laughs> so, yes. yes. <laughs> Speaking yeah. of the uh -huh. importance of yes. the, the Tale of Genji, uh -huh. uh, some uh, some may um, say that the Tale of Genji mm -hmm. is to modern Japanese mm -hmm. literature what Chaucer's Canterbury, Canterbury oh. Tales mm -hmm. is to modern English literature. Do you think that's a reasonable um, comparison? It's, it's interesting, I guess. Um, yeah, I guess, we, yeah, Chaucer makes sense, I believe. I guess um, the difference might be the fact that in many ways, um, how the tale of Genji is thought of mm -hmm. is really more as a novel, mm -hmm. which is which I don't like is especially well, because I think it is a much more orally based tale, because I get the sense that I... Uh, when I read the text, um, we have this Japanese table called a kotatsu, and mm -hmm. it's a square table with a heating unit in the bottom. And so there are four people, and we cozy up, and, you know, it's like this very intimate conversation. And I feel as if, when I read the tale of Genji, that the narrator is telling the story in that very intimate uh -huh. setting, and it's a secret or a special, you know, time that we're spending together. So, yes, I think so in many ways, but, you know, again, it's a different register. Chaucer is... Um, different in terms of what place it held and so sure. on. Yeah. Yeah. What about um, um, the 
when it was first written, mm-hmm. 10th century, 11th century. Uh, 11th century, yeah. Um, the Japanese are the language that it was written mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. It was unintelligible. You had to study it or you said that it yes. was... What about it? Any comparison with that? Um, it's probably equivalent to Beowulf mm-hmm. in English. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And so, and because Murasaki Shikibu was also a master at these very long sentences. And what's really fun is that um, you can... It, she'll shift from a narrator who's always present, and she's and, and she'll make comments, and then she'll the, then the narration flips into the characters' thoughts and so on, mm-hmm. and they shift back and forth. So without her ever being gone, so it's almost you know we have this this thing where uh, in in Japanese they're called jubako, where you have food and it's stacked one on top of the other, and so it's as if they're occupying all the same space. With some blending, and you can't see both of them all the time, but sometimes you can. It's, it's a very interesting kind of narrative uh, structure. Okay. So yeah. to study that, uh-huh. you have to learn the Japanese equivalent of Old English? Right? Yeah, I think so, yes. Um, the, the, um, Peter Flukiger, if anyone would like to take a class, does a <laughs> wonderful job of teaching classical Japanese. Cause, because I can, you know, so because there are other, there's another... Um, work, the Tosa Diary, written um, about, let's see, almost a century, maybe 60 or 70 years before that. And that is so much easier to read than um, Murasaki Shikibu, just because she, and she is just, as I said, a master of a super long sentence that can go on. I mean, the first um, introduction is probably, uh, you know, at least half a page or longer, and it's one sentence. (laughs) And she, you know, really does it superbly well. So, yes. Huh. <laughs> Lynn, let's mm-hmm. fast forward a okay. thousand years. Okay. <laughs> Good. <laughs> you also study the Japanese comic, comic books known as manga. Right, Can you right. tell us about, about how you study them and how okay. you incorporate them into okay. your classes? Well, again, it's very com- connected to the tale of Genji. Um, <laughs> because um, I, was trying, I was teaching my literature class in the tale of Genji and found... Uh, a uh, manga or Japanese comics version of it. And I thought, oh, this would be pretty interesting. So mm-hmm. I'll teach it in class. So that's mm-hmm. when it started. Okay. And um, I was especially thrilled. that My students said, the manga is okay, but the, the text is better. Because, yes, Yeah, I know. As a literature person, I was delighted. I mean, I, I didn't quite understand all the visual <laughs> culture, you know, depth at that point, but okay. that they were able to recognize that the text being longer and so on w- would talk about the psychological, you know, and, and they said the, the manga version I happened to use because it was one of the few that was translated did not give enough time and space to the women who mm. are a central part. And they recognized that right off the bat. So that was quite thrilling. Yeah. So actually... Um, so there's a cultural yeah. aspect that there's in... <clears throat> In the translation of it into modern times, it becomes more of a masculine piece instead of a... Uh, it depends on yeah, who the manga who the, artist is. I see, the, yeah. That part, particular artist was male. And so you can tell when they focus only on Genji and ones where they focus on the women. So some of the women mm-hmm. will just even dispense, women artists, I should say, will dispense with um, even a contiguous story. And they'll just pick out certain women Mm-hmm. Uh, from the tale and tell it totally from their perspective. And <laughs> we have a, we have girls comics, which is for, let's see, 8 to 12-year-old girls. And then we have ladies comics, which is 18 to 35 and older. And for the ladies comics, it's almost as if they 
Now, well, it's not that they dispense with Genji, but he's only the means through which the women experience the ultimate erotic sexual experience with him. So it's really pretty interesting, and they make no bones about it. And that's the genre or the category, I guess, of what they're supposed to do: highlight the women's feelings and you know interaction. So they pretty much create voyeuristic space for the women to really not just be objects of desire, but the subjects of their desire. Even if the hand period, they really are not quite as in control sure. all the time. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, <clears throat> As a scholar, how do you uh -huh. uh, how do you respond to um, manga adaptations of a classic uh, piece of literature? Does uh, does it just feel like a knockoff to you, or does it have some beneficial oh. side? Um, I think it really depends on the particular piece, but um, there. Are over 40 of the, um, yes, Genji um, manga adaptations. And what has been striking is that each of the artists, and they also, you know, very much work within the conventions of the category, but they bring out some totally interesting aspects of the different ladies, of Genji in particular, and so on. So one of my favorites is um, they made Genji a chestnut. <laughs> <laughs> and it's because of a play on words on I, and marong is maro is the um, a, the uh, I reference in mm -hmm. Heian period, um, and then the ung adds it makes it marong, which is a chestnut. <laughs> but it's a, yeah, it's a very delightful piece where um, Genji is this little chestnut and he walks around and everything. And he's very cute. But what is amazing is they're able to tell the story that we want our desires so much that we will enact them, we will do them, even if they are hurtful to those around us. And it's not accusatory. It's who we are as human beings. And so that aspect, in a sense, is a very interesting reading of Genji. Because um, if you teach Genji now to a lot of the 20th and 20, even 21st century especially, in, I guess men, but especially women, they really you know, want to say that Genji is a, a terrible rake, that he just mm -hmm. loves them and leaves them. Mm -hmm. But it's, if you understand the conventions, he actually was better than most, that he actually took care of them um, because they were really beholden on the men for sustenance after their father's passed if, and so on. So he, I mean, he, he has a... He, well, I don't say affair, but he had an encounter with the, one of the princesses who has a red nose, and she's not very attractive at all. But he say, you know, he he spends his entire life. He fixes her house, keeps her. You know, she was going to starve to death. I mean, literally. But he takes care of her, and so in for those days, most men would not do it. So right. this is a good thing, you know. So to have, you know, Genji who. Um, most of the 21st century, 20th century readers would consider terrible to have this manga where you understand, right, mm -hmm. that, you know, he has this super handsome part, but he also has this lustful part. He's at, he's at a level where he's so high ranking that he can kind of do what he wants. And yet, you know, do you just totally write him off and blame him for what he does? Are there other ways to read it? So that's what's been very interesting to me. Whereas you'll have another one where he's a bucktooth, 
guy because they're pl- <laughs> making fun of the fact that he's, you know, so lustful and making him a bumbling figure. So there are all kinds of takes that are mm-hmm. fascinating. So for me, I guess the whole picture, if that was the only thing, I don't know, I might have mm-hmm. issues, right? Mm-hmm. But with the whole corpus of it, it's very interesting to see how the different takes of the Genji are. And, and, and in a sense, it, it's helping people realize the richness of the text, that it can really support all these, you know, in fact, one of them, they actually, because the, the men and women or girls, or I don't know what you call them, were very young when they were married. They, puberty for the men, the uh, 12. And that's when they went through their, you know, the, the what, coming of age ceremony. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, I think the, the girls was 14, maybe. So, you know, Genji has marries when he's 12 and his wife is 14, right? And, right? And so all of, so they have his father, the emperor, and Genji's mother come together. And so this one artist puts them exactly the age that we are today. And so foreplay is playing hide and seek because they're only 12 and 14. So it's just, the, the, you know, it's, so when you think of the richness of all this stuff that go, is going on, it's so interesting that you can, you know, if, when you look at it in those ways, it's like, it's as if what is going on here? Context of era is yeah, very important. Yeah, yeah, yes, <laughs> that's right, that's right. So in that sense, you know, I find it really rich and very exciting to see all these different <laughs> takes on the tale. Lynn, you've mentioned um, how manga, you know, we can analyze uh, a foundational work of literature like Tales of Genji um, through manga. And you mentioned also there's categories for girls and then for women. Can you give us a sense of how important manga is in Japan? Okay. Um, actually, um, I I should have said also that there are um, boys' comics and okay. young men's comics and then adult males. So those mm-hmm. are the five um, uh, categories. Um, I, it, they reached, the manga production reached its peak in 1995. Mm-hmm. And I think it's some huge number. And each, uh, this accounted for, what, 15 volumes <laughs> per man, woman, and child in Japan mm-hmm. when it reached its peak. It was just enormous. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, it has since changed, and then and, and now the deployment is more on digital. But it's become so ubiquitous that it's totally amazing. They use manga to teach everything. They teach you how to bank using <laughs> manga. They proselytize using manga. And in fact, there is one where they... Um, a, a young plumber is taught how to make estimates on sewer <laughs> using manga. <laughs> so they have everything. That's a way to make it interesting. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. I mean, you know, and and so, and then they had magazines for everything. Mm-hmm. And so they even had a magazine for how a young, of course, they have, you know, all the sports one, how to play golf and all that sort of stuff. But they also had one where um, a young wife uh, would, uh, they, it was a manga on how she would break into a new neighborhood. <laughs> I mean, it's that niche. And I guess now all the manga readers are 80 and 90, some of them. So they have for the elderly as well. So they still have them. It's not as, you know, fully operational Mm -hmm. as it was Mm -hmm. in the 1900s. And I think 1900s, 1990s, sorry. Um, And um, 2000, early 2000s. So there is a little bit of a dip. I mean, it's a different situation here probably in the U.S., but Mm -hmm. yeah. Why do you think uh, manga became so... 
so ubiquitous in Japan, so important, and, uh, and yeah, now yeah. important around the world. Yes, yeah. I, I, you know, it is a, I mean, I think I picked up a book on, you know, teaching Derrida using manga or, you know, comics or something. It is, you know, a way that's totally accessible for whether, what degree of literacy you have, right? Mm. And I think it's also um, a very, what, non-threatening way to convey information and it's fun right yeah, it's fun. really a yes. lot of fun so i think that's why i mean um it obviously began after world war ii i mean they had things before and western influence and so on but after world war ii they needed um a cheap entertainment mm -hmm. and this was one way they could do it they used to have kamishiba i guess these you know traveling storytellers who would have a picture and then they would have puppets or whatever. But then um, after that, they ended up using more printed versions. And what is interesting, too, is that it can be niche to very specific audiences. Anime, you still have to have a, a broader appeal. Whereas here, you can have someone who likes to play mahjong on Saturdays or something. You know, I mean, being crazy, but you know, they can be that niche because they're so cheap to produce. Mm -hmm. And so I think that happened. And again, it's really very interesting. But you know, the Heian period started with an incredibly circumscribed in-group population of readers. And as they went through the um, different eras, the group got bigger. The next group was added was warriors. And then after that, it was, you know, farmers. And then it was the townspeople. And then suddenly we're in the 20th century with, you know, a huge population using novels and so on. But at every point, they've always had these in-groups. And so now we make almost a full circuit back to manga because these are targeted for very specific age, audience, specific audiences. So for girls, you know, they don't, you know, they they have the, the, the liaisons have to be out of love, period. I mean, it's, you know, and, and the, the, the women have to be the absolute beautiful objects of desire, you know, who are chased by these handsome, I mean, that's just part of the deal, right? And for the boys, it has to be action, camaraderie, you know, that the bonding through friendship and you grow based on that. And so they're totally niched in that way. So you have a very interesting return back to these mm -hmm. small niched groups. And so I think in that sense, you can convey information, interests, and so on. And some people say, you know, they, uh, because there's not a great deal of space in Japan to, you know, that kind of entertainment escapism, Mm -hmm. was also part and parcel. You know, I, I don't do much work in sociology, so I don't know. They, because mm -hmm. the literature right. people don't really talk about that as much. But yeah. I mean, is Japanese manga different mm -hmm. from what we see in American bookstores or comic stores? Um, certainly the for the superhero ones, definitely. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, uh, we were just reading in my manga class that Scott McCloud says that the American ones are more goal-oriented or Western ones that they have to get there, whereas for Japan, it's more the journey. Um, I, I don't know if we can be as cut and dried, but, you know, I mean, the, the Japanese one, I think there's one who manga that has been going on for 39 years so they can take you know very a long time and so for instance there's a very famous a long plot yeah yeah or you know <laughs> we can take sidetracks and friends become enemies and enemies become friends and back and forth but there is one um, series called Slam Dunk and it's about basketball and it's about it's in you know in high school and um, there's a 
someone who has raw talent, but they're trying to get him to join the team, and he does because he likes the girl manager or something. And but then they actually become a serious team and for contenders. And I think the last, I think it's thirteen biologists. I mean, the last three to six of them are on the last game. <laughs> You know, it's dribble once and then <laughs> three pages later. Yeah, <laughs> you know all the you know. I mean, so they can really. So it is yeah. participating in that experience and reliving the the horror, the excitement, the delight, the and whatever. Living it in real time. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I you know, and it's yeah. really interesting. They're very good at this, mm-hmm. at at doing this, and it seems to be moving when it's not. You know, but uh-huh. for boys' comics, you know. Um, they can read, uh, Shad, uh, Frederick Shad said, you read one page in 3.75 seconds. I'm like, right. Because when I read it, I'm like, whose arm is this? <laughs> you know, I can't quite do it. But I actually um, watched one of my friend's nephew, and yeah, by gum, he's reading it. Three point, and he's, yeah. he was 10, you know? <laughs> he was 10. So it is that kind of fast-paced reading that is also very much in place. Yeah. Now, who so, are the... The great uh, manga artists? Um, probably Tezuka Osamu is considered, he's almost a balance to Miyazaki Hayao in terms of the anime side, but he was the um, really one who set a lot of it in motion. Um, he was a doctor by trade, but decided he didn't want to do doctors, uh, doctoring, so he ended up doing manga. And he spent a lot of time watching a lot of. Um, the films and so on and Disney. And so there's all this great, there's a suit as to whether um, uh, Lion King is actually a knockoff of one of his pieces and all sorts of things. But (laughs) but, um, he made it cinematic. Mm -hmm. He made it cinematic. So as one one of the scholars said that anime, I mean, sorry, uh, manga is actually, well, anime is actually manga speeded up. So it is that, you know, that kind of back and forth is mm-hmm. is very much. So Tezuka Osamu, there are um, many, um, depends on the genre that you're working with right now. Um, the old favorites came out of a, a, a set of, um, what, um, I guess they all lived in one house together mm-hmm. at the very beginning in order to make their breakthrough into the field. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and so it depends on who you talk to because I'm teaching manga class now and they all read and they're niched in very interesting ways as well. And so they know who, you know, the 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 best ones in their area, but not necessarily in the others. Are those yeah. niches sort of set in stone? I mean, is it? Is, I mean, uh-huh. is it really? If you're a boy, yeah, here's yeah. your set of right. manga, and if right. you're a girl, here's yeah. your set. Um, I would say that girls will openly read boys, but the boys are not too happy about reading romantic, you know, so they'll read their sisters or, or somebody, but, you know, flowers and pink covers, they're pr- probably going to stay away from. <laughs> but, I mean, if you talk to a lot of the American, you know, fans, you know, guys are very much into shoujo comic, girls' comics, and they don't mind saying mm-hmm. so. But in Japan, yeah. I don't think it's they would no, no, quite still. be, you know, because no. they're still incredibly gender segregated in ways that are very interesting. For instance, um, couples don't go out together with other couples. Not really. <laughs> the women do their thing and the men do their thing. It's very, very interesting. So it isn't that, you know, so those are still gendered, you know, uh, se- segregated. And the best 
most high schools are still all male. Really? There are some very good all female high schools, but the top of the line are still you know boys, and so mm -hmm. there is that still very much you know um, going on. Is this? Yeah. Do you think the manga helps reinforce that, or is that? Yeah, yeah, I think maybe you know. Um, it's or it's a comfortable place for the readers to land, you know, <laughs> so to speak. But I think there's a lot of cross you know, reading that actually is going on under. And then if you look at the artists, you can yeah. see there's influence on both sides and mm -hmm. what's going on. And, you know, mm -hmm. of course, I don't think we're going to get too many flowery um, the episodes in Shonen just yet. But, you know, the women, you know, are getting, you know, probably their, their it's, you know, for instance, Sailor Moon is one of the ones that all the, you know, girls grew up on. And um, she's always, you know, very... Um, you know, short skirts and the whole bit. But it's very interesting that even my readers, you know, American readers here, not my readers, American readers here also say um, it looks like she's being objectified and so on, and yet she's going to serve, save the world, <laughs> you know? So they love all these kind of dichotomies. And she actually is, does poorly in, high, in junior high, has a crush on her, you know? So she's just this regular girl mm -hmm. who stumbles through life. And that's what mm -hmm. I guess is a major appeal of manga, that they have not superheroes, right. but regular mm -hmm. people who can still save the world. So anyone can be a superhero. Yeah, in a sense, in a sense, you know? Yeah, I guess in a sense, or at least they can, they're relatable. That's the term, yeah. that these people are totally relatable. And I think that's why also, you know, the chestnut Genji was, because he's totally relatable in, you know, we can feel bad about these things, but understand, yeah, we, we're getting, you know, it's, yeah, I know I do that and it's bad, you know, and so on, so, mm -hmm. yeah. Then you mentioned that mm. manga was at this its height at mid nineties. Yes. What's what's the future of manga? What do you think it's it's gonna happen? Um, I think they'll always have it around. I mean, or and it'll be published, but not quite at the pace that it was. And in fact, um, I guess Carl Horn did a very interesting piece with you. His he said they're banking on international. Mm -hmm. um, readership expanding. Mm -hmm. And I was totally amazed. I mean, basically when this started in the eighties, most of the, uh, readers were really mainstream Caucasian populations. Mm. Yes. And then we wondered what was going on. And I remember teaching a, um, so let's see, yeah. Um, ID class and being totally amazed that I had, you know, fervent, Caucasian readers, but of course, Asian Americans, but Latino and also African American. I was totally amazed. And this was the time when they were coming into the fold. And mm -hmm. I just went to see what is called Dragon Ball Z. This is one of the shonen voicing. They had a new animation and there was a one day showing in La Lamel, I guess it's called in Pasadena. So I, it was my birthday. So I told my husband, let's go. And he's, he's okay. And so we get there. It's my birthday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have to go. So there were 130 people. And I will swear that maybe 10% were Caucasian. Everybody else was Latino, African-American, and a huge population of Middle Easterners. 
So I was very, very surprised. Dragon the other, Ball Z yeah. was great, was big in South America. Yeah, yeah, yes, that's what they said. And my husband goes, he stands up and and he comes back and he gleefully says, "You're the oldest person in this theater." <laughs> and I said, "You're the second oldest person in this theater because I'm older than he." And we all just laugh. But everybody's in their twenties and thirties, mm-hmm. maybe hovering in their forties. And they do exactly what they do for Gundam and the others. They chant some of the lines, they clap, and they you know say you did it or whatever. And my husband goes, what's going on? I go, I don't know either. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, I mean, this is a, you know, something that they are very invested in and mm-hmm. they probably grew up on it yeah. as children, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. That's my generation. Yeah. 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 <laughs> right, right. yeah so you understand yeah. it was totally amazing mm-hmm. to watch this. <laughs> uh, going back to the tale of Genji uh-huh. for a second, I, or, or relating to uh-huh. it, um, are there other old Japanese texts being brought forward in manga? Uh, the, it depends on where you look. For instance, the, the one who did the Bucktooth <laughs> Genji, he did um, several others, um, uh, about five or six other uh, Heian texts, um, and he did one volume each on them. There are, um, you know, a desire for, I, I guess the, the last group I forgot to explain is called the educational manga, where they're using to teach. So this, the, you know, they have everything from geography to math to, you know, literary texts and so on. And mm-hmm. so they came out with, there are a couple of um, series in which, oh, two or three, I guess, where they actually do the classical classic texts in manga mm-hmm. form in, to inform the young readers mm-hmm. and try to get them to go back to the the mm-hmm. actual text in you know the <laughs> so it's meant to pull them into the uh, yes yes the yes it, yes they really want them to do so but but what they've done is for the tale of Genji Asaki Yumemishi Fleeting Dreams is thirteen volumes and probably one of the most beautiful girls comics versions <laughs> and they were using that to prepare for entrance exams to, <laughs> to come to high school <laughs> and so I think now there are some schools actually have a question that asks not about the tale of Genji but about the fleeting dream version of the tale of Genji maybe they do a comparison or something I don't know <laughs> That's funny. That yeah. yes very popular so she made loads of money I think <laughs> yeah um, Let's talk a little bit about your classes. Okay. Can you tell us some of your favorite ones to teach? Um, I guess, uh, you know, contrary to maybe a lot of lit people, I actually love teaching my, um, uh, I guess the, it's the third semester intermediate Japanese. Mm-hmm. It's really, really interesting to mm-hmm. see how they work. Of course, you know, it's pushing and pulling and chubbing and all this sort of stuff. But um, they've actually taught me a lot about um, the differences between English and Japanese. So, you know, how, for instance, um, I didn't realize they couldn't figure out who the subject was because the Japanese omit them because, you know, this understood. And I figured out they know what it is because a lot of the text that we have in that period, uh, that class is dialogues and it'll say John or, you know, Tanaka or so on. So when I would give them these little write-ups that I'd have for listening, they couldn't tell who was speaking. And I thought, oh my goodness. And, you know, I just thought it was understood, but it wasn't. So it actually helped me a lot in my, I one of the research topics that I used to do, I used to, I was trying to figure out who from the text, who could I reconstruct as the reader 
of the tale of Genji. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, that mm-hmm. was helpful to me that text, you know, elicited certain kinds of reading strategies and assumptions about who the reader was. And so this class, you know, very much helped me um, learn that and figure out ways in which to, to uh, you know, work on it as a, a research um, topic, I there guess. There might be an opportunity for manga for intermediate Japanese. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. definitely. <laughs> they would love it. <laughs> Are there certain types of students drawn to, to studying Japanese? Um, yes. I think those who love um, the Chinese characters. Um, there are some who are, you know, they're just so fascinated by this that they want to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's always been there. Um, and of course, in the 80s and so, we got those who were interested in business. Japan was a, you know, hot commodity. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess that has waned a lot. And I think that's shifted much over to the Chinese side. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do get people who are, and, and of course, the, the Japanese have, wonder about this, but it's because of manga and anime that they come. They mm-hmm. really want to know what I it wondered. says. Yeah, that is a re- powerful. <laughs> and for the Japanese, they're just totally nonplussed because they wrote this for their, you know, their um, reading audience in Japan. And they are totally bewildered as to why it hit so globally. They have no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but actually one of my scholar friends says that, um, we were primed to accept a lot of it because at, um, in the 50s and 60s, TV came to the fore and they had no content. <laughs> so then they needed stuff. And so they had Transformers and Power Rangers and all the American kids had no idea these were Japanese, but they were being primed in how to accept this, read this stuff, right? Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> you know, and so they, and then Godzilla movies or whatever, he said. Yeah. And so it's very interesting. Mm-hmm. And, and yet I think also what uh, the other thing that draws them is I think for... Um, Americans, the individualism, in a sense, it's a badge of courage to know, badge of courage, badge of honor to know something that is pretty neat and cool that no one else may know or, you know, and so, right. Mm -hmm. And it's considered to be very hard. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes, yes. It's considered to be very hard. And so we have that element. And then we also have those who are interested in some of the traditional arts, say, you know, Buddhism and so on. Less so now, that was probably the case when I was in grad school where Zen Buddhism was, you know, and all the martial arts, those things were the draw. But now Mm -hmm. I think it is much more anime and manga, much to the chagrin of some people, but I like it. (laughs) Hey, whatever brings them. Yeah, I mean, that that and food, that and food, Japanese food, they will be there in a second. (laughs) I will too. Yeah, oh, please, we'll we'll have to invite you. We're actually having Japan Fest, so please come. Oh, yeah, okay. I think it's going to be March 10th, and we're making weird things like spam musubi and <laughs> and sausage, like octopus sausage <laughs> things, and what else? <laughs> and Japanese rice balls and very mm-hmm. vegetarian friendly. Yeah, oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> the rice balls are going to be fine. Oh, yes, right. <laughs> and then we'll have latte matcha tea, so that's okay. Ooh, that's my favorite. <laughs> yeah, oh, good. Um, Lynn, you're uh, the faculty advisor for the animation and right, the clubs right. and, and also right. Japanese. Can you tell us about your role? With oh, those okay. Groups? For um, in this couple of years, it's been sort of on the, I haven't seen <laughs> anything, but um, in the past, it's been um, very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had... Um, uh, various, very energized groups who have done um, showings and so and they, they'll do weekend, 
you know, 24 hour whatever on, I don't know, Evangelion, which is another super favorite. And so they'll do a lot of that. But Mm -hmm. I haven't seen much activity recently, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, Mm -hmm. in the last two years. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to figure out how to resurrect that. Yes, yes. Um, Going back to your research, Mm -hmm. um, how do you involve students in your research? Um, You know, at the beginning, I thought, oh, gosh, they can't read classical Japanese. But but what happened was they know more about manga than I do. (laughs) So they've been a great help. Um, And so they will do research for me. Um, and actually, I'm in contact with some of the graduates who will, you know, I'll like ask them about, you know, what's the conventions of this or that, especially in the U.S. And they've been very, very helpful in that regard. Um, but uh, they often will do a lot of research on general trends for me in manga studies and so on. So less so in the, you know, the classical uh, mm-hmm. aspect, but more in the manga. Yeah. And, and certainly, as I said, my manga class itself, um, they're very, you know, they don't know it, but they're, they're actually helping me in, with, in my research about how to explain things for an, uh, an American audience about, you know, Japanese conventions and so on. So in, in that way, um, my classroom is a, a great way where I get ideas and ways of, of explaining things and working with the students. Mm-hmm. Some of your research uh-huh. also, I mean, mm-hmm. you've talked a little bit about it already, mm-hmm. um, focuses on the voices of women and gender bending. Mm-hmm. Can you talk us, what are some of your findings, what are some of the research that you've done in that area? Oh, okay. I guess I, it really started um, with um, working in the Heian period to really um, look at a era where the women were really quite prominent. And mm-hmm. so although they were pretty much under the thumbs of the patriarchy, they um, were able uh, um, to what push back to make their voices heard, and 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 um, this is actually replicated even much more powerfully in many of the manga versions as to how they actually push back and mm. and ways in which um, they have even in. Well, what should I say? Even in Genji, for instance, the, their their responses to Genji's poems when he sends them are are very subtle, subversive pushbacks within the conventions, which are really quite powerful. And I think that's always been there. And I think that's the power of Murataki Shikibu and why she has had such great um, connections with um you know, peoples even in the present. And I am not, I don't know if there are more women who prefer the tale of Genji than men, I'm not sure. I mean, but certainly it it shows that even in those situations, you're not a doormat and you don't, you know, you can do what you can mm-hmm. <laughs> within. And so mm-hmm. I think that was my study. So I began looking at the Heian period really from a more feminist frame of reference and, and, and looking at ways in which um, uh, feminist discourses can be, um, discussed and presented without being anachronistic. So that was the balance that I had to do. But I've always used Western theory um, because I'm a complete ma- major um, it, um, to really look at Japanese texts. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's been very much the, the, what's going on. And in terms of manga, you know, trying to figure out how the women, the girls' stories are told within the manga, and then to realize that for the ladies, as I said, that... Um, they are not objects, but they want to be subjects. And how is that portrayed in a period, you know, sort of a period where 
they're not supposed to have that. So what did the manga artists do to give them a head, you know, sort of a um, uh, leg up on how to explain what's going on? Um, Also, there are, um, there is one where Genji becomes a young woman and the, all the ladies are young men. So here is a very interesting gender mm. bending. And then if you layer that on top of Genji being, you know, the tail itself, you get all kinds of very interesting transsexual, trans, you know. So those are very interesting ways of looking at, at the text itself. And then we have one that is called BL or Boys Love, where both of them are men. And we, it's male, male romances. So it's a very interesting phenomenon in which um, these are written by heterosexual women for generally heterosexual audiences and female. Mm -hmm. And um, there was an uproar from the gay population that you are not, you know, uh, presenting our issues um, fairly Mm -hmm. or correctly Mm -hmm. or whatever. And all kinds of pushback. And the women artist just said, look, we're not talking about you. We're talking about us. I thought, what are they doing? <laughs> and, and basically, after doing a, a lot of research, I uh, found that for a lot of these artists and their readers, um, they could never do a male-female coupling because automatically, because of the mores of Japanese society, the men have to be um, above. above, both figuratively and <laughs> truly. <laughs> so there were certain yeah. issues there. If yeah. not, the woman would be considered a whore or assertive, you know, weird, you know, and this is not what they want to be doing. Project, yeah. Right. So basically what happened is if they had two men, they were one step away from that. Mm-hmm. And they could therefore occupy either position and be the receiver of the affection, yes, or the initiator. And bottom line, this is not a abusive relationship. The the younger, I guess it's called the ukeo receiver, recipient, has an equal and balanced relationship with the semi, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the initiator, which is very, very interesting. And it is the only way that they say they can conceive of a relationship on equal terms. So it's totally fascinating. It still blows my mind. And, you know, it takes a long time for the students to do, to think about what this <laughs> means and what's going on. But, you know, here, this is a very striking usage and very unusual and most, you know, um, um, I think feminists are, would not conceive of it that way, but a lot of the, the Japanese scholars who work on BL have worked through this and talked to the practitioners and figured out that this is what they're trying to do. Yeah, I, it's interesting mm-hmm. to me that so much of, of studying um, Japanese literature, right. even Japanese yes. language, yes. involves trying to put yourself into that culture. Exactly, you have no other way to do it. You've and got to. What yeah. you were just explaining is something that when you see it in our culture, yeah, it's like, it's oh, my, like God, oh right? my God, oh my God, what yeah. is, what's yeah. going on? Yes, right, right. And so, but when you start to explain it from from the point yes. of view of Japanese yes. culture, it right. begins to make sense. Right. Is that something that students struggle with? Um, yeah, I think they do, especially um, because um, I think for English and probably many Western discourses, um, as you can see what I'm doing now, I'm talking and I look at your faces and go, okay, if you don't understand, I have to say it another way, but my job is to convince you at least to, to, to 
hear what I'm saying mm-hmm. and then hopefully get you to agree. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Japanese, they always, it's dialogic. That the speaker and the listener know each other so well that the speaker almost never speaks from their positionality alone. It's from the other person. Mm. And and this is, and so my friend, you know, so they don't believe in I and they or you, not really conceptually. My linguistic friend said it's not even I and everyone, it's almost everyone. I said, what does that mean? It, it's, it's so interesting that you are part of this group and share all their codes of references, understanding, and that's a given. And mm-hmm. if you don't do it, and that's why these niche readings targeted manga work so incredibly well, mm-hmm. because they assume that you got it right and you participate in this. And so yeah. even in Japanese literature, if you don't like or agree with the value system, you can't read it. Mm-hmm. You just can't read it. You have to be part of that circle to truly, I mean, you can be totally oppositional and slog through this thing, but you have a hard time mm-hmm. because you just don't get it and you don't accept it. And every point, point, you know, it's, you're getting pushed and, you know, shoved around and you're not happy about this. So, yeah, it's a very interesting um, relationship, I think. And how do you yeah. get them to understand that? Um, yeah, I guess. It's it's right now. I guess I'm doing elementary, so we're still doing you know a very basic high yeah. need to go whatever. But um, whenever I can, I guess I I talk about these kinds of things and mm-hmm. say you know look at why are they using for instance if, you know if we would say kyo wa atsui desu ne and the ne why do they have that I, I said uh, it's hot and the ne in a sense indicates um, isn't it. Because it always is asking the other persons and not saying it is hot, take it or leave yeah. it. And so those little things begin to help them understand that it you never it's go in. in a way. Yeah, you mm-hmm. don't go out there and just say what you want. It's always yeah. referential. Yes, always, it, it yeah. always you must think of and some of the and some of the constructions are so funny. Uh, for instance, it's benkyo sasete arigato gozaimasu. It means Thank you very much for allowing me, making me study. It's like, how can that be gratitude? <laughs> you know, right? <laughs> but that's exactly it. That, you know, you always, and you can't say um, they, they bought tickets. It's always for me, for someone else. So the benefit, you have to acknowledge the fact that someone's done you a favor. And there's incredible payback, not payback, but, you know, you have to repay them in interesting kinds of ways. And so this give and take is part of the language, so it's helpful. But, you know, we have to point them out and say, okay, this is why. And so when you say, um, when someone says something, you have to say, oh, is that so? And they, you know, to acknowledge what they said first, and then you say what you want. You don't just blab (laughs) and shove it, you know, whereas English, we can be a little more direct, Direct. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, so it's all there. We just have to keep showing it to them and, you know, saying this is what adult discourse in Japanese is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Good. So um, <laughs> you're on leave this spring? Um, um, actually, I'm, um, I'm on phased retirement, but I'm uh, teaching this spring and I was on phased um, in the fall. Okay. Yeah. So um, can you tell us what you're working on right now? Um, actually, I'm trying to finish my um, manga, uh, Tale of Genji manga 
uh, work <laughs> or mm-hmm. book project, I guess. It just gets longer and longer. And so I want to say, please don't publish any more Genji manga. <laughs> Stop. Stop. Yes, yes, yeah, right, right. From now on, I'm putting you in a footnote. Got it? You know. <laughs> so that's what, you know, because I've had to, I have to spend all my time learning these, you know, codes. Yeah. I mean, it has been a killer. I had no idea what BL was. It's like, what are they doing and why, you know? And so yeah, I spent most of my time having to educate myself on this. And once I get it, they get a new version. It's like, no, don't do that. <laughs> so that's what I'm working on. And I, I did, and now I've stopped. I'm trying to teach and, and that sort of thing. And yeah. yeah. But, Can you tell um, us about your... Um, the Manzanar pilgrimage. Is that oh project yes, you're it on? is yeah. pretty cool. Mm-hmm. That's the reason why I stopped. And I think I got to rewriting for the second time, up to chapter five because that's when all the Manzanar starts uh, mm-hmm. began. But it's actually a five. I think there are five events. I believe that's correct. It it actually started just with the pilgrimage. Um, the pilgrimage to Manzanar. This is the fiftieth anniversary. Um, and so I said, oh, let's, let's, you know, get a bus and get over there. And so that was the curl. And then I met one of the librarians outside the library and I go, hey, what do you think about doing an exhibition? She goes, sure. No idea what it takes. I mean, those librarians have to get several awards for doing this. <laughs> this is a lot of work and, and they've yeah. been very gracious. So now we're doing um, the library exhibit, which will open on April 1st. And on April 4th will be a uh, community storytelling workshop in which um, the speakers will actually use uh, two of the items in the exhibition to tell stories. And so we're teaching people how to do object-centered um, oral histories, I guess is what it is. And so um, they'll model model it for everyone and there'll be a moderator who will give guidelines and so on then after that everyone breaks up in their own little groups and tells you know their own story and I we figured how do we tell everyone they should bring an object and we thought oh they have cell phones they'll find something that they need to talk about on their cell phones and we'll use that so that's on the fourth and so that's the the hard opening or the you know the formal opening of the exhibition and then um, on the 12th we have uh, let's see what oh yeah I think yeah, the twelfth is the fostering um, uh, incarceration allies workshop. So this is we we broaden it out incarceration because part of the exhibit is to show that it's not um, assembly, but it's actually detention centers. And so we're changing the terminology, and it's not in, um, it's not internment camp; it's incarceration is really the term, and so mm-hmm. on. And then the return is not a pleasant you know, come back to normalcy or something. So because of that, we thought we'd brought in it a little bit further in, in, and talk about um, how can all of us become allies for incarceration of any kind, be it jail, be it, you know, immigration detention, um, uh, profiling, whatever, for mm-hmm. anybody. So they're actually one of our Pomona uh, alums, uh, Tio, um, oh gosh, I'm not going to get her name right. But T.U. is coming. Yes, yeah, yeah. recent grad um, is coming back. Yeah, she's coming back. And also Roger Chung will be here um, and they'll be running the workshop for us. So that's really pretty exciting. And um, yeah, so and then we have the last one. Oh, yeah, we have two more. I guess um, uh, Monica Embry is actually coming back to speak about her grandmother's work, um, Sue 
um, Embry, who actually um, was part of the Manzanar Committee, which um, worked very hard to get Manzanar to become a historical, national historical site. Mm -hmm. And so she will be uh, giving a talk, and she's going to bring artifacts from her grandmother's collection to showcase in the Asian Studies um, region of the library. And then the last is the 27th, and we'll be going to um, uh, Manzanar by bus, so we're trying to get one. How personal is this for you? I, I know your family uh, was yeah, in Hawaii. Right. Um, so very few were incarcerated from Hawaii because over 50% were Japanese Americans. <laughs> so they couldn't do it. They would shut down the economy. So yeah. they had not, you know, no choice. They did crazy things like put all the planes in the middle of the airfield. So when the Japanese came through, they bombed them in two minutes or maybe less, I don't know right. what it was. I mean, it was because, and the reason they did it is because they distrusted the Japanese Americans. They thought that we yeah. were going to sabotage planes. Yeah. But um, but in what happened was certain people who had connections with the Japanese government were uh, taken from Hawaii and put into camps across and changed because they're very worried that they will rabble riles and get the people to, you know. My grandfather and great-grandmother, great, no, sorry, my grandfather and great-uncle were two who were um, incarcerated because of the fact that um, they were two of the few who actually could write. They were farmers from Hiroshima. And I, the, the interesting thing is a lot of people came from Hiroshima because... <laughs> They said there were a lot of pirates there and they were used to the ocean not afraid is what one of my Japanese friends said. I said, oh, okay, I think. And so when he told me this in Japanese, I thought, I know Kaizoku is a pirate, but he doesn't mean that. And I looked it up. He does mean that. <laughs> but anyway, to go back to the story, sorry. Um, so because um, they could write, um, they every time a child was born, they have to send it to the registry in Japan, and they would put it in the family registry that the certain you know person was born. And because of that, they considered it um, legal and full you know association or whatever with con contact with the Japanese okay. government. So it's people like these they pulled. So my uncle happened to be in Kahuku, which is um, on the North Shore, and Honolulu is where my um, grandmother and mother were, and they froze the bank account, so they had no way of living. So my mom had to go out to work, and so did my grandmother, but somehow or other they were able to survive the time. Wow. Yeah, and so it was uh, the other sad thing is when my grandfather came back, he had diabetes, so they didn't have, you know, medication was not great. So yeah. he did, he died within what, I guess I was born in 1950. So now everyone knows how old I am, but that's okay. <laughs> he um, died in 1950. But you know, that's what happens, yeah. I guess. Yeah. And why is it important not to forget Manzanar? Um, I think it's because, you know, and I'm not trying to um, politically charge anything, but it's a very crucial time in which our government is, you know, going after immigrants, certain populations, and so on. And I and and it's you know, um, this is what happens when you go too far. And um, citizens are citizens, and immigrants we should treat with you know, documented or undocumented. I think we have to come up with a different solution. And so I think this is a very good reminder that um, treating people in this way is not. Um, it's not 
um, I guess to use his term, it's not American. <laughs> you know, it really is not for what our country stands for. So I think it's a really great reminder. And um, I, it, what was interesting is when they were profiling um, the Middle Easterners after the bombing, mm -hmm. you know, seven, mm -hmm. uh, what the, uh, the bombing of the towers and so on. Basically, the ones who wrote really were very, very prominent in saying you cannot profile the the Middle Easterners actually were the Japanese Americans. Yeah. yeah I mean, one of the voices were, was incredible. And Japanese Americans usually don't say very much, but this time they were out in front and said, you can't do this. And so I think these are messages that we need to be reminded of very clearly. On that note, <laughs> we're going to wrap this up. Okay, uh, great. <laughs> Our thanks to uh, Professor Lin Miyaki uh, for talking to us about Japanese literature and manga. Uh, thanks. Well, my pleasure. Lynn, Thank, you Thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate and to it. all who have stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Until next time.